So when we started this church 20 years ago, part of the journey of a pastor is you learn yourself, um, you learn your marriage, um, and then you learn your calling. You know, you, you, know you're, you know you have a call, but you don't really understand it. You know, you, there's a lot of nuances to the call of God. You know, God says, go, you go, and then it's, um, I think you said this yesterday, Pastor Rob, you, you start putting the plane together in the air. And, uh, and that's kind of the way it's felt for, for a lot of the time. So for the first five, six, seven years, you know, we tried to figure ourselves out. I tried to figure out who I was, my gift, my pastoring, my preaching, you know, all of that. And then the next five or six years, we're figuring the church out. You know, how, how is this church going to be? And then, and then we figured that out. And, and that whole time, we're figuring ourselves out. We're raising a family. Well, last year, when everything hit with coronavirus against our country, all of the stuff that happened, uh, my wife and I, we, with more clarity than we've ever had, got a word from God on where we t were to head, head this church, lead this church into the next season. And one of the people that was very responsible for that was Pastor Rob. We didn't know him at the time. But we saw him on the news. We saw him on, on social media. We saw a guy who was in California, a very tough state in regards to what was going on with government, with all of the shutdowns. And I watched somebody stand up for Jesus, for the church that refused to, to fall into any type of fear. And I watched from a distance and I was like, man, God, thank you for people like that. And it was because of you, Pastor Rob, that we opened our church earlier than anybody else. <laughs> you know, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, whatever you want to do, but we're going to do it. And some of you may have noticed this, but, you know, we started with social distancing. And after about three weeks, I'm like, hey, let's just scoot the chairs together. Who cares? Um, let's just follow the science here and believe God. Um, either he's, he's real and uh or not and I, I realized very quickly that fear was the biggest disease that was happening to the church and so um so a few months ago we were honored to meet pastor rob in arizona and just to put a name with the face spend some time together and we connected went to dinner together and i just heard his heart and it really blessed us penny and i and i'm just so honored to have him here today and i I wanted to open it up to everybody. I know we got a lot of people watching on Zoom. Thank you guys for joining. Give it up for them for watching. Woo, hey, everybody. Well, the reason why I wanted you to hear from Pastor Rob is because I wanted you to hear a voice, not only in the church, but a, a prophetic voice. Um, God does things, changes things in two ways. He either does it by prophecy or he does it by problems. And what you're going to hear today is a prophetic word, a prophetic voice in the kingdom of God. And I'm, I'm excited to have Pastor Rob. So can we stand up and give it up for Pastor Rob McCoy from God Speak Church, California? Thank you, man.
Usually amen means let's eat, but... <laughs> yeah, amen. <laughs> Our church is called Calorie Chapel. Yeah. Well, uh, a, a precious introduction, one I, I don't know that I can live up to, but I, I will say that um, it, it's true that we've been contending in California, and uh, much like uh, Pastor Choi and Pastor Penny, uh, we started 20 years ago at God Speak, my wife and I. Prior to that, I was a youth minister, and I want to begin with this, and then I'll walk through some of the stuff we've been in California, and, and I'm going to lay out a couple things, and I'll stay within the time constraints, and I, I'll try not to bore you to death. Um, I left the industry to go into ministry, and we ended up, I owned a house, I was flying first class on American Airlines, calling on the headquarters of Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, and accruing points, I paid for my whole honeymoon on points, and life was good, I had a company car, and our first baby, and then I had this crazy idea of wanting to go into the ministry. And in less than a year, I went from owning a house, calling on the headquarters of Walmart, flying first class, to living in Section 8 housing, working hourly in a Walmart, stocking toilet paper in, in Fresno, California. Now, Fresno, if California needed an enema, they'd put the tube in Fresno. Yeah. It's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from Fresno. And, and I went into the ministry wanting to serve the Lord. And I remember at that point, I, I ruptured a couple discs in my back. And, and I, I, I was taken to the hospital, my wife, and I was in the back seat of the car on all fours like a dog because I, I couldn't move. I literally crawled because I couldn't sit in a wheelchair, so I crawled to the front door, and finally I, I got uh, to the doctor's office there. And they shot me full of morphine. And I'd never had morphine before. And when they gave it to me, I realized at that moment, if everyone were on morphine, there'd be world peace. <laughs> but then with all drugs, it's a lie. And, and then I got addicted to painkillers. And uh, that was rough. Ended up, and it's a long story, I won't bore you with it, but we ended up in ministry in San Jose, California, and a man that we had met early on in our marriage when we were going through some struggles, a pastor who had transferred from Redlands there to San Jose starting a church, he, he, um, he asked me to be the youth minister. And so I, I joined on staff, stopped working retail. I thought, I don't know if I want to work for this guy, because he doesn't have discernment. Why would he hire me? Now, now, you're laughing, but I really felt that way. When I gave up my job and went into the ministry, my father called me, and he was on one of those old cell phones that looked like a Korean War radio <laughs> back in the day, and he was in Priest Gulch, Colorado, and thank God it had bad reception because I was telling him what I was doing, and he said, don't do it. My dad, when I told him I was a Christian, he said, get that Jesus crap out of my house. My dad had always been a provider, three tours of Vietnam, Navy captain, senior executive vice president of a bank, uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce, president of the Rotary. He's a good man. But he said, get that Jesus crap out of my house. The only one in his family to ever get a college degree. His father was the town drunk. And my dad meant well. But he said, if you go into the ministry, you'll never provide for your family. And, and, and you're stooping 
to, to do a, a, something that is beneath you. And I didn't get his blessing. And then the phone went dead. And before he could call me back or find reception, I, I quit. I went into the ministry. And true to his word, he didn't like it. And they abandoned us. My in-laws were a lot more gracious. Neither of them knew the Lord, but they would at least come and visit us. And it ended up in Section Section 8 housing, living in the worst part of Fresno. They had the second highest murder rate, second highest car theft rate of any city in, in the United States. It was, it was awful. And, and I remember struggling so profoundly. I leave Fresno, um, and I end up in San Jose with this pastor, and he hires me as a youth minister. And like I said, I didn't think he had discernment because I was still struggling with opioids. And it was a, a kind of a secret and a private sin. My wife knew. She always knew. I didn't know she knew, but she always knew. She's amazing. She's, she says, it's not my job to convict you. It's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I remember when I, I came to that realization that I, the return wasn't worth the investment, and I went to tell her where all the stuff was, and walk in the light as he's in the light, confess your sins one to another. Just fungus only grows in the dark, so I wanted to just, this is where I get it. This is what I'm like when I'm on it. I just wanted to tell the truth. And she goes, I already knew where it was. I'm like, how long have you known? All along. And I, I just, I, I felt more in love with her at that moment. She, she just let the Lord do it. But in the midst of this, as I started out in ministry, um, the church was overwhelmed. And they would assign a staff member to stay in the office from four to five in case there were drop-in counseling appointments, and all the other staff would get to go home, and one person would be assigned that day if anyone dropped in. So we had the receptionist, we had the janitor, and then a pastor. So I was assigned that day, and I hadn't had a, morning, I hadn't had a devotion. I was dry. I was questioning my calling. I was depressed. Um, I, 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 just, I just felt like, I need to give this up. I'd wasted my time. And I kind of said a prayer to the Lord. I go, you know, God, I don't have anything to give. So please, don't let anyone come in. And then right then the phone rings. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you not listen? Do you not care? I mean, I was hurt. And it was Tia, the receptionist. She said, Rob, there's a lady here with um, her daughter. She was wanting to meet with a pastor. I'm like, okay. And I walk out, and I put on, you know, Jesus. I put on the facade. And I walk out, and I go, hey, how you doing? And the lady's on the phone. She doesn't even acknowledge me. And she's in the power business suit, and she's making money. And it's in San Jose during the dot-com. She was making bank. And you could go Rolex the whole bit. And I only knew that the, her, her child was a daughter because Tia had said her daughter's here. Because the girl, her hair was dyed black short. She had black eyeliner, black nail polish, black clothing. I mean, goth, as you can imagine. And just just demonic. And she's just looking at you like, get away from me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and as I'm walking up, I can hear the lady going, yeah, no, it probably is a waste of time, but it, yeah, I'll just give it a shot. Okay, bye-bye. And she hangs up. She goes, hi. She said, my, my daughter's been in the psych ward. She's going to have to go back, and it's very expensive. And someone said, maybe she should go to a church, and pastors do whatever you do. So maybe you could speak with her. And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and inside, I am just, God, what is your problem? And, and I, I, I turn to her, and I go, why don't you come with me, and we'll go talk. She doesn't get up. 
And the mother and the daughter begin cussing at each other. And she goes, get the up. She goes, oh my God, this is so stupid. I hate you, I hate you. So she starts following me. And she's sucking the oxygen out of the room. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, I can just feel, <laughs> and we get in the room, she slumps in the chair, I leave the door open and, and, I, and, and, I, and I, I look at her and I'm, I'm bone dry. I just have no patience. I got my own problems. I don't need yours. <laughs> Ministry would be awesome if it weren't for the people. <laughs> so I look at her and I go, hey, uh, let's ex exchange some niceties. What's your name? She goes, none of your business. At that point, I'm done. I go, look. I don't want to be here any more than you do. Why don't you tell me your name? We'll exchange some niceties and you can go home. Now, what's your name? She goes, my name is Raven. <laughs> like a blackbird? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she didn't laugh. And I look at her and I go, Raven, I'm just going to tell you one thing. You're about ready to go into a psych ward. You've been there before. They're going to pump you all full kinds of drugs. You're going to hear voices. And I'm going to help you distinguish those voices. There's going to be three voices. There's going to be God's. And his is true. And he loves you with an everlasting love. He has every hair on your head numbered. He came that you'd have life, life more abundant. And he's going to set you free. He's pursuing you. He left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross. And I'm just repeating. But I know it's true. As in then there's the enemy's voice. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a father of lies. He hates you. You've been creating the image of God. He wants you destroyed. He wants you to hurt your whole family. He wants you to take your life. He wants, to, he wants you to get revenge. And then there's going to be your voice. You'll be the ping pong ball between the two. And I said... I'm just going to give you this advice. There was a Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter. And the scripture says she worshiped the Lord with three words. There was no music, no instruments. She worshiped the Lord with three words. Lord, help me. So Raven, when you're in that psych ward and you hear the cacophony of noise, just say, Lord, help me. You call on him, he'll show you great and mighty things you know not of, and say, Lord, save me. And Lord, that will save you is Jesus. And I prayed, and I was the only one in the room who said amen. And she looked at me and she said, are you finished yet? I said, yeah. And she says, oh my God, what a waste of time. She gets up and she walks out. The woman says, I knew this was a waste of time. Get in the car and they cuss and they walk away. And the enemy says, your dad's right. You've wasted your time. You know it. You're a liar. Your life's a lie. You'll never be a minister. You might as well quit now. I own this generation. They're mine. It sent me into depression for eight months. I read a book by the late Alan Redpath, Making of a Man of God, City in the Life of David. It lifted my spirits. God restored me by seeing these three words of God that when David went out on the battlefield to contend with a nine-foot, ten-inch giant, he invoked three names for God. The living God, 
Jehovah, which is his personal name, the Tetragrammaton, it's four consonants, but it's always attached to an attribute, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Tezekanu, Jehovah Shalom. And really what it means is, I will be for you whatever you need when you need it. And then the other word that he used was the Lord of hosts, surrounded by angels. So when David walked out, he, he was walking out with a living God while the Philistines were carting out Dagon, their God, on a cart. And he was invoking angels. A third had fallen with Satan, two-thirds were gods. One angel wiped out 187,000 Assyrians. David starts running after this guy with this sling. As he's approaching him, David said, I'm going to cut off your head, which he didn't have a sword. And he's ruddy, and he's running after him. If, you know, whatever you're reading, you think they're accurate. They're not. I've, I've done that in Boy Scout camp, and I was swinging that thing, and I let it go, and my friend Rich McEwen's head's bleeding. You know, he's over here. I'm like, and then you got the adrenaline pumping, and he's running at Goliath, letting that thing go, and then covered in bronze, he's shimmering in the Middle Eastern sun, looks like, you know, a, a scaled Leviathan, only area in his entire armored physique is his head, and that stone goes through his skull, right. I, I just, honestly, I think one of the angels, Lord of hosts, grabbed it, just exocet missile, six wings, so, and, and David, it's, I'm going to, you know, Goliath said, I'm going to cut your head off and feed it to the birds of the air. Go, I, I, I'm going to cut your head off and feed it to the birds of the air. You know, he didn't know what to say. He didn't even know how to trash talk. <laughs> so David has to pull out Goliath's sword, you know, and put it over his neck. He has to bounce up and down on it to get through the neck and break the entrails and lift the head up. And then, and, and I always thought that that was a story on how to defeat a giant. And it isn't. Because the beginning of the passage says, that the Philistines occupied territory that rightfully belonged to God. The story is about how content God's people are to allow Satan to occupy territory that belongs to God. And how we just roll over and take it. And David said, who is this who defies the armies of the living God? They called him a giant. David never used that word. He says he's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's a defier of the armies of Israel. And he walked out and invoked the name of the Lord and had victory. That lifted my spirits, and the entire youth group changed. 1999 to 2000, they had a thing a lot of you don't know. It's called Y2K, where they thought that the world was going to melt because the digits <laughs> couldn't handle it on the computer. And it ended up with some blinking light in Moscow. I mean, it wasn't anything. But every parent in the church was scared to death, and everyone was moving to Montana for their gated, you know, compounds and their canned goods and their AR-15s, and they were scared. And I wanted to take our youth group, which at the time had exploded to like 400 kids, I wanted to take them up to youth camp to, you know, usher in the new millennium. And the parents were like, you, you can't do that. I go, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to be down in the valley. All hell's going to break loose. We're going to watch the fires, and they're going to be safe. <laughs> And so the parents, let's do it. And the kids all went up there and it was a move of God's spirit like nothing I've ever seen in all my life. Many of those kids today are in full-time ministry. It was profound. I've only seen one other event that would equal it. And it just moved me. I'm, I'm done, I'm crying. I'm thinking, God, you're so good. He had lifted me out of my depression. I'm looking at this room and it's just filled with kids. And that moment, it's like the Lord just said, Rob, I got this. I'm so blessed. It's moved beyond measure. And I, I want to talk to you because we're in a battle right now for truth. Yes. 
The Bible says speak the truth in love. Truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. And we're watching today as, as truth is being convoluted. And a lot of you younger folks love this term. And I do too, by the way. Because I spent most of my time in the inner city. I, I, uh, I work with John Perkins, Mendenhall, Mississippi. I worked in the inner cities of Fresno. Fresno, which had the second highest murder rate, second highest car theft rate, when we started working in the inner city in the Lowell District, and we started painting the slumlord houses for free with donated paint with my youth group and putting on vacation Bible schools, and we started to own the inner city, we watched as Fresno became America's finest city in 1997. It had the highest crime rate drop of any city its size in FBI statistic history. So I love justice, and I love social justice. I love going into the inner city and I love seeing lives changed. But nowadays, when we say we don't see color, we're racist. When did that happen? Nowadays, you're not allowed to talk about social justice because of an immutable trait you possess. I have no control over how God made me. I don't have melanin. I bubble, I don't tan. And now Christianity is a white man's religion. And, it, and, and I love the term social justice. I, I love to go in and right a wrong. But we're playing with two different terms. And forgive me for what I'm about to do. Pastor Troy, please stand up. Turn to your right. My right, stupid. Okay, I called him stupid. He's not. <laughs> Whose command was wrong? Who, who, who failed to obey an order? Answer me. Me? Well, I could say, but it was my truth. It's what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to turn to my right, stupid. And I'm demeaning you. And I'm forcing you to see me as the king. And I'm controlling you. You did exactly what I said, turn to the right. But this is my reality. Now we're messing with terms. What's my point? Semantics. I want to read some things to you. And I've done extensive study on this. This is... This is what's been going on since the 60s in our schools of higher learning where they have stolen social justice and changed the terms. They're now making it to destroy and remove meaning from words. This is right out of a book. Uh, of a study on social justice that was designed, they said, for social justice, getting beyond views of truth as objective and absolute is the most fundamental change we need. Did you hear that? So, this was quoted, and, and this is a fascinating tweet. It was by um, Gillibrand, Kirsten Gillibrand. She, she tweeted, she said, Paid leave is infrastructure. Childcare is infrastructure. Caregiving is infrastructure to justify 
an illegal bill that they're trying to pass uh, that funds everything but infrastructure. And then this Canadian professor, who's a Christian, wrote, sleeping with individuals other than one's spouse is monogamy. Sleeping with men when you are a man is heterosexuality. Pregnancy is virginity. Virginity is promiscuity. Language can be, he wrote this, I love it, he said, language can be so liberating when we're unshackled by shared meaning and semantics. Violent crime is climate change or racist. Open borders is climate change or racism. Defund the police is climate change or racism. Voter fraud is climate change or racism. This is dangerous. When you remove the meaning from words, you no longer have truth. Jesus said, speak the truth in love. Proverbs. Have I not written to you, Proverbs 22, have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send you? And this is one of my favorites. It says of the Lord in Deuteronomy, he is the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. See, you can't have justice without truth. And George Orwell said, it's political speak. You take a position that's indefensible and you do it with words that have no meaning. You just change the terms. And that's what all politicians do. And now we're in a mess right now because they said the church wasn't essential. And I've, read the, I, I've read the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. And they said the church was non-essential. The governor did. I, I, was, I was a councilman on the city council in Thousand Oaks. I'd been the mayor when 12 of our young people had been shot, two of them from my congregation. I officiated their funerals. I was with every family when, when they were notified that their children were one of the victims. I was the only council member to do that because I'd been a sheriff's chaplain. I was with them every step of the way. I love my city. I wept with them. I love my city. I would never put it in danger. And I studied this virus. We had no less than 12 doctors at the time, two psychologists. We looked at the data. We knew it didn't merit the suspension of the First Amendment. We knew it. We knew that masks are like throwing sand at a chain link fence. If you can sell, smell cigarette smoke, I got news for you, that virus is getting through. It's one one thousandth of a strain of hair. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. But we abided by the CDC standards when we opened up, when they tried to shut down our, our Holy Week in, in, in 2020. They said, you know, Palm Sunday, you, you can't do communion. No, no, excuse me, Good Friday, you can't do communion. I'm like, oh, no, we're going to do communion. So we took a sanctuary that holds 400. We had 10 chairs. It took us almost four hours to do communion. The press came down on us like we were the super spreaders. But to their credit, they said it was the cleanest place in all of Ventura. Now, as the... As the governor was saying that the church is non-essential, he said abortion clinics were essential, where you can rip apart a little baby in the womb of its mother and flush its parts into the sewer of California, which leads the nation in abortion, and we've aborted more children than the entire population of Canada. You can do that. That's essential. 
Liquor stores are essential. Cannabis distributors are essential, but the church isn't. And the people who pushed back the most were the churches. And you know what they invoked? Romans 13. I'm so sick of that verse. From their perspective. I love the verse from mine. It was the most quoted verse in Nazi Germany. Submit to those in authority. For God has appointed all positions of authority. But they leave out the part for our good. This nation was founded by a man who died in 1766. He never even saw the Declaration of Independence, but he inspired. His name was Jonathan Mayhew. He was a minister. And he looked at Romans 13 with the tyranny of the king, and he said, it's not unlimited submission. When the king ceases to do good, he's no longer the authority. And he coined a term saying, disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. And John Adams said, that invoked the American Revolution, and you've enjoyed 244 years in the freest nation ever conceived in the history of the world. And we're about to lose it. And it's an interesting nation. It's called a constitutional republic. In the 6,000 years of recorded history, every nation has been an oligarchy. The few rule the many. Whether it's communism, fascism, socialism, the elite rule the stupid. But in America, it's, there's a sovereign. And the Bible says God appoints all positions of authority. You know who the authority is in Romans 13 according to a constitutional republic? It's the first three words of the preamble of the Constitution. We the people. And they govern by our consent. And they're constrained by the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution that probably nobody in this room can recite. I can. Took me a while to learn them. Fifty years ago, everybody in the country knew them. A fifth grader knew them. They knew all 27 of the amendments. We're clueless. And they're bound by the, by, they're governed by our consent, bound by that constitution. And when they violate that, our birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence, says it's our right and our duty to push back. So when he violated the First Amendment, I looked at him and I said, we're opening. And we did. Now, I'm willing to let them do, I'll render unto Caesar, put me in jail, define me, take everything I own. But liberty and freedom is more valuable to me than any possession I have. And people would say, that's not loving your neighbor. I got really sick of that. They say, you're not loving your neighbor because you're exposing them. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, didn't, we didn't do this haphazardly or ignorantly. We studied the data. And when the governor saw the rioting in L.A. where 75% of the businesses that were burned and looted were Jewish-owned and targeted, and they were shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with no masks, and he praised them, I realized at that moment, we're opening. We already knew the data. Yeah. I was willing, willing to to yield until he came to that understanding. But then I realized this is all political. It's kind of like a, a, a wife submitting to her husband. She's not, she's not forced to do it. She willingly does it. And I was, I was doing that to the governor. I was honoring that position. But now, now you're abusive. Now you're abusive. And so we stood in opposition to it. And the people who pushed back the most were churches. They ridiculed and criticized us. 
in the largest church in California. I won't say the name. We wrote them a letter. We said, why aren't you open? Come on, join us. They wrote back and they said, we're not a political church. We do take the safety of our members and the community very seriously and out of love and concern, we're not meeting in a large group for weekend services. So I responded. Oh, and they also said, we have our homeless ministry and we have our counseling ministry. We still have those. So I responded. I said, I recognize a choice that your church made was out of love and concern, but you cannot say you're not political. Politics is the highest form of community in that it combines morality and sociability, as Aristotle said. Those pastors who have chosen to fully open their churches deeply love their communities and congregants and are also very concerned for the health and safety of their communities just like you. However, to say that you're not political is not accurate. You have chosen to politically stand by your silence and submission with tyrannical officials who have ruined our economy, closed our schools, divided our people between essential and non-essential, and declared our churches as non-essential. You stated that your church has weathered the financial storm, but don't lose sight of the fact that these draconian actions by our state government have financially destroyed many congregations and they will never reopen. You marched with BLM Inc. even though their actions resulted in innocent citizens losing everything they own and 75% of their businesses in Los Angeles were burned and looted, were Jewish owned and targeted. How can you say you're not political? The pastors that have opened their churches are maligned and ridiculed and you have said nothing in their defense and yet in love and great concern for their communities, these churches stand against this tyrannical government that has forced their neighbors' businesses into bankruptcy they force the abused to be quarantined with the, their abusers. They force the elderly to, to die alone, all while these government officials have received full paychecks provided by your punished neighbors whose taxes are the highest in the nation. Yes. These churches have been fined and shuttered, and yet you complicitly stand with these tyrannical politicians and their views and actions as being acceptable for a virus that isn't even calculated like every other virus in our nation's history, but instead of it being measured by, it's being measured by who has contracted it. You are complicit with our government who continues to trample small business of California with shifting impossible metrics to, to reopen, all while the state's homeless population and poverty rates now lead the entire country. Politically, your church consentingly and silently waits downstream to collect the human heartache they help create by complying to this government malfeasance. Your political, even if you choose to think you are not. <clears throat> we have the highest homelessness and the highest poverty of any, any state in the union. And that's created. Now, Calvary Chapel started in California in 1968, 10,000% growth. And that's conversion growth, not transfer growth. There's more Calvary Chapels than Dunkin' Donuts. We preach the gospel. Preach the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe in your heart, confess your tongue, Jesus Lord, you will be saved. Greg Laurie, Calvary Chapel, God bless you, I see your hand. Crusades. 10,000% growth. We've been doing that for 52 years. 1968, when Calvary Chapel started, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot on the balcony in Memphis, Tennessee of a motel. Bobby Kennedy was shot in 1968. We had the My Lai Massacre, the Tet Offensive, Vietnam. And in 1968, California had the fifth largest GDP, it was a state of the future. Reagan was governor. And all these people were disillusioned, these young people, because they were looking for hope and change. 
and all their heroes had been killed. And they checked out of the church and they went into Eastern religions and drug use. And by the way, we've had the highest number of opioid deaths in the history of the United States in a 12-month period. 360% increase in child abuse in our county alone. 75% or 65% of our businesses will never reopen in Ventura County that have been shuttered. And in 1968, California's dealing with this, and here's what happens. Chuck Smith shows up with Kay, sees all these hippies awash on the shores of California burned out. He begins to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Massive revival, they all get saved, but he avoids politics because they were all sensitive to that. So for 52 years, we've, we've seen conversions. And how has that transformed California? What's the power of the gospel? Well, we don't have the, the fifth largest GDP. Now we, we have the sixth, almost seventh. Now we have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in debt. You combine the next four largest states' debt, it doesn't equal the debt of California. We're the authors of transgender bathroom bills, no-fault divorce, the most secular progressive sexual education curriculum ever devised by man that is vile. I can't even read a page of it. And like I said earlier, we've aborted more children than the entire population of Canada. Where's the power of the gospel? Now, you have all been educated that there's a separation of church and state. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because politics, as I said, is a combination of morality and sociability. I'll walk you through a simple history, I'll conclude, and then I'll take questions and answers, all right? Three to five million Jews were enslaved in Egypt. They worked all day and got nothing for it by the sweat of a tyrannical pharaoh. He beat them and whipped them and killed their children. And by the way, we want to talk about BLM Inc., Black Lives Matter. You ready for this? 13% of the population in the United States is black. Cut that in half, 6.5%, 6.5% male, female. Break it down to 4% for childbearing females. 4% of the population of America is responsible for 37% of the abortions. It's a holocaust in the black community. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. Do your own homework. Study to show yourself approved. Whatever things are true, you need to find this out. You need to be equipped for the generation that's looking to you for leadership. And she set up all of these in inner cities to get rid of the undesirable races. I, I don't know about you, but that's from the devil himself. Black lives do matter. I'm fighting for the unborn. I care. And so they cry out to God to be set free from slavery. And God sends Moses. He's 80 years old at the time. First 40 years, he was educated in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. He was handsome in word and deed. Next 40 years, he was in the backside of the Midian desert talking to goats. <laughs> now he confronts Pharaoh at 80 years of age. He lives to be 120, but he confronts Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? He says, I'll show you who's in control. I'm going to double the brick output and reduce the materials. Let's tell your people like that. He goes back to the Jews. And you know what they do? They complain to him. Look what you've done to us. People want freedom. They just don't want to work for it. We are a nation that is, has isolated pleasure to avoid pain. And by the way, pain is a gift from God. You want to live in a pain-free world? Go to a leper colony. That's what Hansen's disease does. It takes away all your, your pain. 
their fingers fall off, not, not, not because it rots the flesh. It's because they, they step on a nail and they don't even know they've done it. They have no pain. God gave you pain to tell you in a fallen world, don't do that. You violate the laws of nature and nature is God. The law breaks you. We can't do what we're doing and sustain it. So they, they cry out to God. He sends a deliverer. Now they complain to the deliverer. Almost finished. Ten plagues, miraculous. Pharaoh relents after the angel of death passes over. He lets him go, realizes he's losing his slave economy, so he sends his military after him. They get drowned in the Red Sea. They get through to the desert on the other side. God provides manna every morning. Manna means what is it? <laughs> Bamana kadi, bamama bread. Water comes out of a rock where there wasn't water. Quail are blown off course so they can have so much meat that's coming out of their nostrils. Their shoes don't wear out. Their clothes don't wear out. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and gets a downloaded moral app. Decalogue, Ten Commandments. Moral law. First four commandments, relationship with God. Second, six commandments, relationship with each other. He comes down and the entire nation is in debauchery. A total rave. Golden calf. They're like... What are you doing? Look at you. You're crazy. And he, he's instructed by the Lord. He's instructed by the Lord. Listen, he's instructed by the Lord to teach the moral law to the children and put it in the center of the community. Now I'm going to tell you the greatest miracle of all. Better than the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, the shoes not wearing out, the manna. The greatest miracle of all is that three to five million people lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army because they had moral law. You're accountable to him and treat each other right. This whole social justice, capital S, capital J, not social justice, we like, this theory that they're teaching our children, the whole purpose is to remove God. It's not to remove white people. It's to remove God. Just go down the list of what they're after. Intersectionality is, let's just take the people that are Christians. And let's exchange the truth for a lie. And change the meaning of words. What is the law? The law are the wise restraints that make men free. How do restraints make you free? You apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. I was an all-American swimmer, and a lot of you guys are going, yeah, you look more like a buoy. <laughs> I still hold all the records at Fresno State because they got rid of their men's program. Swimming. <laughs> I was an all-American qualified for the Olympic trials. And I got there because when all my friends were partying, every morning I was up at 4.30 in the morning in the water by 5. I never missed a practice 5 to 7 in the morning and four to six in the evening. And I did that every day, three hours on Saturday. I, work, I, I swam under Michael Francis Troy, a two-time gold medal winner, broke his own world record eight times, Navy SEAL, two tours of Vietnam. The guy was tough as nails. And I learned how to apply restraints in order to pursue excellence. And I achieved and got to experience swimming at a level none of you will ever get to. Because while we, you were sleeping in, I was swimming. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to achieve great things, but it requires restraint. And if you give to a child when it cries or a pig when it oinks, you'll end up with a 
rotten child and a fine pig. God wants us to establish these things. I'm almost finished. I'll conclude with this. The idea of this moral law, all of a sudden, and you wonder about this constitutional republic that we have in America. Moses is overwhelmed because he's applying the law to all the people. And he's one man. And his father-in-law, Jethro, comes up to him. Exodus 18, he says, listen, you need to appoint godly men who love truth and apply them, uh, assign them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Federal, state, county, local. Representative form of government. One person governs by your consent. We pick him. Why do we pick him? Because he has character. He loves truth. What we, there's integrity. You can stand upon that man or that woman. He lays it out. And as these are appointed, and this idea of a representative form of, of government, then we not only get a republic in, in Exodus 18, we also get a constitutional republic because God gave the Constitution the Ten Commandments. These are the constraints. Don't mess with me and don't mess with each other. God didn't give us a democracy. Democracy ends up in mob rule. Democracy doesn't protect the minorities. That's how six and a half million Jews were killed. Now, the idea of truth, and this is what we close with. You speak the truth in love. If you love folks, you're going to make some tough decisions. And they're not going to like you very much. And they'll malign you and ridicule you. And I walk out to my car and I see a note in the car that says, good luck starting your car, as I've keyed it. People aren't the enemy, they're the opportunity. Yes. I can get another car. I can fix the scratch. And the note, come on. Got anything better than that? You're threatening me with heaven. <laughs> but we're afraid. You know, what, you know what fear is? You're afraid of pain. Pain's a gift from God. In a fallen world, good will contend with evil, and evil bites. Yep. Don't be afraid of that. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Words matter. Know them. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And when you do that, and you know the God in whom you stand, you realize that when you're in the lion's den and you're obedient to the Lord, the lions roar, but they don't bite. You know what happened today? The county of Ventura just lifted their lawsuit against us. And all five supervisors are going to be recalled. Because the community looked and said, they abused the governance that we gave them by consent. And the story closes with this. 
you're amazing. Because you're servants. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Be a servant of all. And the test of a servant is how, you're, how you act when you're being treated like one. Servant speaks when they're spoken to, offers their opinion when they're asked. You put up with a lot. And sometimes you get tired in the work, but not of it. And some of you are questioning your call and you're wondering if the pastor has discernment because you have your own personal demons you're struggling with. We all do. I know that feeling. But he who called you, he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. If God can use me, he can use anyone. He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He picked me not because I'm articulate. He picked me because people look at me and go, if he can do it, anyone can. I know me. I know me. I know the voices in my head. I still hear my dad's voice. Thank God, 15 years into Alzheimer's, I went to go visit my mom and my dad. My mom's in a love, uh, I'm on a love seat with my wife. My mother's in a high back chair. My dad's over here. My mom and my wife are talking, and my dad coping would bring my mother a banana and bring her some water and a blanket because he, he didn't have short-term memory. He just knew I'd take care of this woman. He's bringing her a blanket in the middle of the summer. My mother says, boy, sit down. And he sits down. He doesn't talk. And I don't want to look at him because if I do, he's going he's gonna to get confused. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my peripheral and I can see that he's staring at me. And I love the man, but he's gone. Funniest man I ever knew. My mom and my wife are talking. My dad won't stop looking at me. I turn and I look at him. He's looking at me. And whatever's left in that brain is working hard. What do you do? We called him sir. I said, sir, I'm, I'm a minister. I'm a pastor of a church. You know my son's a minister, and I'm very proud of him. First time I ever heard him say, my wife, my wife was crying, my, my, my mom was crying. And you're hearing that voice that's lying to you. It's not true. When that youth group exploded and those kids came to the Lord, and it was just such a magnificent night, that New Year's, most kids in the world were drinking, these kids were seeking the Lord. I'll never forget that the camp counselor came out and said, look, we've got to dissipate, we've got city ordinances, the kids got to go back to their cabins. They're all going back worshiping the Lord, little micro-worshiping sessions. And one of the female counselors comes up and he says, Pastor Rob, uh, Savannah's crying. And Savannah was my key youth group kid. I love this kid. Beautiful California blonde. And she had done babysitting and all kinds of odd and end jobs to raise money to bring her public school friends to the camp and subsidize them. And she did a coin and uh, an agape club at her public school. I mean, this kid was on fire. And she's crying. I'm like, I got to fix this. And I go over to Savannah. I go, hey, hey, kiddo, what's going on? Why are you crying? She goes, Pastor Rob, I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm just overwhelmed at how good God is. And you know how I'm feeling. I'm like on cloud nine. I've just come out of eight months of depression. I go, Savannah, he's so good. She's, she says, yeah, he is. But you don't know how good he is. And I'm, I'm kind of laughing because she didn't know. And I go, yeah, no, Savannah, I know how good God is. 
She says, no, you don't. I'm getting a little irritated. <laughs> and I get a little stern look on my face. And I go, Savannah, trust me. I know how good God is. She says, no, you don't. I go, Savannah, I'm not sure what you're saying. She says, Pastor Rob, Raven. I go, how do you know that name? She goes, it's me. I go, she had black hair. She goes, I dyed it. She said, when I came back and my parents went through a divorce, and just like you said, and I called them. Man, that's 20-something years ago. I'm still choked up. She said, I did what you said, and I came back to the Euchre. It was so big, and I was in the back, and I was wearing a dress, and I knew you didn't recognize me. I knew you didn't. But he is so good. God's not a liar. You've been called. Don't you be discouraged. We got tough times ahead, but he picked the right people. Light it up. God bless you guys. Awesome. We want to do... Um, just a couple questions. Go and have just a seat. Can you answer a couple questions? Yeah. Are you able to? If they're comfortable, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, does anybody have a question? I have one if you want me to kick it off. Um, so what a powerful story. I mean, amazing. If you were to put yourself in their seats for a second what would be one or two things that we could do immediately in our own world you know so you know we got we got married couples we got people that are serving voluntarily we got influencers we've got political people here what what you know if if there's one thing that they could do right now with regards to making the shift the change what would you tell them the the, the shift to servant to 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 have, start having more influence yeah. to be able to speak the truth in love. And, and when I, I preface that with saying because what happens is with the cancel culture is you start speaking out and, you know, they're just canceling you. I mean, it's just tough. I mean, I, I'll, yeah. I'll block 2,000 people on my Instagram right. when I make a statement that's truth. And so how, how, do, you, how do you make what – what are some things that we can do immediately? First of all, you've got to hear the right voice. The sheep know his voice. Spend time with the Lord. He'll speak to you. He's the one who called me to do what I did. And, and the enemy's going to rage when you start obeying the word of God. So I called our attorney when we were going to violate this restraining order, and the county said it's a 1,000 citations for, for congregants and visitors, and specifically I was named in the suit. And they wanted the sheriff to come out to handcuff us and lock the doors of the church. And all the voices started to rage. I knew God's voice. He said, do it. But I called the attorney, and the Bible says, count the cost. And so I called the attorney, and I said, could you tell me everything I could lose? And this was Saturday, and I was trying to have a vacation with my family. We do every summer, and I had this unbelievable pain in my shoulder. I couldn't move my right arm. 
Seriously, I've never had pain like that. that that's with the ruptured disc and the morphine. World peace, remember that? <laughs> I, I, I hadn't had pain like that. My, my son-in-law was with me. He could see it. I was wincing in pain. couldn't even hold my arm. I, I almost like needed a sling. And, and I, I'm in the airport because I have to fly back to face this. And I'm going to have a meeting that night with the elders, all 15 of them. And I called the attorney and I said, tell me everything we could lose when we violate this. He says, they can take your house, they'll take your church, IRS audit, you'll get death threats. Um, you're going to be smeared. He just starts going down the list. I go, is there anything else? He goes, yeah, and he adds a couple more things. I'm like, dude, I mean, anything else? And he, four or five times, he's adding stuff, like thinking. I just go, really, I want everything. And he lays it all out. And I look at it. It's a lot. I'm going to lose everything I own. I go, I'm going to violate it. He goes, I can't counsel you to break the law, but I'll be there when you do. I said, good, can you meet with the elders tomorrow? He goes, I can't. I'm going to be on the lake with my kids. <laughs> but there's another attorney on the call. Her name was Netta. Her, her, her married name's Higuera, but her maiden name was Palestinian. And Bob Tyler says, Netta, are you there? And the silence. Netta? He goes, yeah, I'm here, Bob. I'm just crying. She'd come from a Palestinian family. She'd been incestually raped and forced to have an abortion. She's the only one from her family who'd become a Christian. She'd been forced to wear a burqa. And she said, I never thought America would force its people to do what I had to do there. And she said, I'd given up hope. And Rob, you've ministered to me. I'm like, I'm ministering to you. Are you kidding me, girl? And she said, I'll be there tomorrow. And we prayed. And I had to catch the flight. And I hung up. And the pain was gone. And I turned to Micah, my son. I'm like, look. You want to do something? Stay in the word hear his voice, count the cost, and remember this, anything given to God first will never be lost. Because you have him, you have all you need. And faith has never been more profound. And I'm looking at you guys, I know that that calling is on you. This church has already done that. So stay in the word. And don't be afraid of what it costs, because it's worth it. Very good. Who has a question? Anybody have a question? I'll, 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 I'll nestle. Go ahead. It's about what's happening in the schools. Yep. The indoctrination of our yes. youth. Oh, sorry. My question is about what's happening in the schools. Um, I have four kids from high school to kindergarten. We've been at four different schools in Charlotte, public, private, one thinking we were going to a private Christian school, but it was really a woke ideology school where my third grader, or at the time first grader, knew more about the meaning of LGBTQIA plus than he right. could read those right. letters and phonics. So we pulled them out. We're at a more conservative Christian school, but what I see is the infiltration of a few very loud voices, one on the board of the school, now a chaplain in the high school, promoting these ideologies and we know what is coming. We can see what's happening and we're speaking out and telling our friends the, the words matter. You yep. know, when they say marginalized, entitlements, the privilege, mm -hmm. equity versus equality, all of these words. And what I've 
coined my term as unsuspecting compassionate Christians. They're, they're unsuspecting to what's happening. Yeah, they mean well, but they're... Yeah. And they say, we just have to love each other. We're called to love each other. I have said so many times, we are called truth. We, we are called to speak truth in love, just right. like you're saying, truth and justice. So I guess my question is, we've been gathering families, speaking to them in a grassroots effort, trying to get them to have the boldness and the courage to speak up. And so many are afraid. They're afraid of losing their friends. They're afraid of what somebody might think of them. And I keep saying, you, you have to have your faith in God. You cannot have your fear in these, what people are saying. We've spoken to the head of the school and I think this is happening everywhere. I guess yeah. my question is what, we just continue on this path, speaking to people in the grassroots. Is there more we can do? Um, yeah. It's frustrating and discouraging at times, but the unsuspecting Christians are the ones that I find most challenging. Yes. So evil is linear, and it never rests. And it, it comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And while we're enjoying our families and our baubles and our trinkets and we're occupied with the things of this world, evil is seeking to enslave. And we've been given a gift in a constitutional republic, a nation of the people, by the people, and for the people. And, and 2 Timothy, which is pastoral epistle, says, pray for kings and those in authority that we would live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. And, and I, I quote that pastoral epistle, and pastors go, amen, brother. I go, word of God, amen. I go, well, based on that epistle, that pastoral epistle, the word of God, could you please name for me your five school board members and your five city council members that you pray for by name so that your community can live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and reverence? You can hear a pin drop. We have been given, everything's local. And, and, and right now, you can change this city. I got elected, I mean, I got elected in a Democrat region as a white evangelical Republican in California. I'm, I'm more endangered than a California condor. But when the churches realize that in California, there's 15,280,000 self-professing evangelical Christians of which half aren't even registered to vote. And of the half that are registered to vote, only half of those vote in a presidential election, 11% in a non-presidential election. So there's lots to do. The first one is, don't be discouraged, don't quit, don't grow weary in well-doing, evil never sleeps, get off, you, you, don't be a pew potato. And start engaging in a government of the people, by the people, and for the people for the sake of the next generation because a nation grows great whose citizens plant trees of the shade they will never know. It's not about you. It's about your kids and your grandkids. Give it everything you have and fight like, it, like you mean it. Very good. You know, um, let me say this too just to help you and help us understand and those of you that are watching you know i was a little too hard on that no that's that great, that was great. <laughs> no, i'm i'm gonna uh, i just i feel like that because one of the things that you're challenged with as christians is you need to be empathetic well search that in the bible there is no you can't find empathy in the bible jesus was not empathetic let that sit for a second he was compassionate there's the difference between empathy. Jesus was rationally compassionate. See, empathy is for connection. Compassion is for conviction. So Jesus had compassion for those that were weary. It says that, you know, in Matthew that he was, he saw the people 
and they were, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, shepherds are meant to take the flock to the next land, the next field. L leave a sheep by itself, they'll just wander. That's their nature. And so what we have to do as believers, as truth bearers, speaking the truth of, in love is having rational compassion, meaning that, that you bring conviction to the conversation. Empathy, you connect with people, empathy, but you can't leave it at empathy. And so what you're doing, way to go yeah, for man. standing up. Way to go for speaking out. Way to go. And the truth is, you're going to lose friends. Yeah. And we are going to lose friends. I've, I've gotten more pastor friends of mine call me and go, hey, um, I've just, I've seen your posts on, you and Penny's posts on Instagram, and I just don't understand. And I explain it to them, and then I don't hear from them anymore. And these are people that um, have spoken here at Freedom House that are really close friends that, sadly, I just don't think they're going to be close to me anymore. And I'm okay with that, and you have to be okay with that. We still love them. Yeah, absolutely. And they're not the enemy. No, no. They're just very confused yeah. at how critical yeah. this is. And yeah. they're going back to the truncated myopic gospel. Jesus didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. Yeah. Of all nations. Mm. Boundaries, borders, compacts, agreements. Open borders? Okay, unlock your door. But it doesn't apply to a nation? And then here's the other one, but, but we're, we're, we're empathetic. Okay, have them live with you. But you don't do it. Jesus always spoke to the individual, never the government. He spoke to the individual. And here's, I'll leave this, this is a good one. We bought a house, my wife and I in a HOA. And the house had this junky jacuzzi in it. And the HOA required we had to lock on the gate. I'm like, why? Things ugly. Because you'll be liable if a child goes in and drowns in your jacuzzi. I go, why would I be liable? Because you entice the child. I mean, on a warm summer day, your thing's off, the kid walks in, the gate's open, gets in the pool, drowns, you've enticed the child. I go, all right, fair enough. When you have an open border, you entice people to come up while they're raped and, and trafficked and abused. I have to lock my gate so I don't entice. We need to do the same thing. If we care about people, you agree to the terms. And everywhere in the Bible where it talks about immigration, it always deals with assimilation. We agree to this compact. These seven articles, that's a citizen. You can visit, but when you want to come here, these must be adhered to. That's a citizen. The Bible teaches that. Very good. So, so I, want to, um, I want you just to bring some clarity to this. I know um, there have been conversations that we've had. You, you mentioned about voting for character and voting for what if you look at a perceived candidate because this is what we heard a lot last year what if you look at a candidate and you don't think either one necessarily has character or maybe you look at one and you think they're sweet and kind and the other's a bit of a bully like how do you vote how do you help us with that because i think this is one thing where christians have really gotten off as we're looking for a sweet kind gentle tender-hearted person to lead us that's filled with the power of god and and help us decipher that yeah i i, I didn't vote for pastor-in-chief i voted for commander-in-chief 
And, and, and I, I, I say that because as you look and you say, okay, let's look at what's important to the Lord. First of all, I will tell you the moral imperative right now that there, there were, there were 400,000 slaves in America, 1860. And, and, and we're aborting millions of babies. Literally ripping them apart, flushing them into the sewer system of our nation, and we're asking God to bless us. 70 million? That's a moral imperative. That's number one for me. There's a Holocaust happening right now. Now, the church loves to do a black tile, but where are they on the March for Life? Where are they in defending the unborn? Because it's not popular. Oh, we'll do sex trafficking. Okay, that's, that's good, but we are killing babies. And we don't talk about it anymore because you don't make money at it. You can't keep butts in the seat as you, you have the business model for a return on investment. So I look for that. Where are you online? If you get life wrong, everything else is irrelevant. Because if you don't value life, we've been creating the image of God, the Imago Dei. You don't value life, everything else is a problem. You, you agree to take a baby partially out of the womb of its mother, suck its brains out and remove the rest of it? I, I'm not playing by those rules. That I'm, I'm not going to do that. And you say, well, I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus Christ is running for office, you will always be voting for the lesser of two evils. And I, and I get it. I remember this one, because I was not a Trump guy at all. And they're like, how can you, how can you vote for somebody who's been three times married and twice divorced? <laughs> but 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 how can you how can you yeah seriously and, and more than that he's vile in many respects he's caustic and bombastic and prideful it, it's it's almost like oscar schindler and if i was a jew i i go work for him because i don't want to go to auschwitz and he comes along and i look at him and he he wasn't who I was looking for. I don't even know. He, two Corinthians? Who are you, dude? <laughs> and, I, and I'm questioning. I'm, I'm questioning if he. I, I know what I'm getting with the other candidate, but with with you, you you were pro-choice, and now you're saying you're pro-life. I'm weighing the two of them. And then I'm starting to see people move, and I'm starting to realize something's happening here. And then one day God showed me something about him. Samson. Judges 14. I mean, you look at Samson's life. Name one moral thing about Samson. He, he was given an, oh, one of only two children ever prophesied in the scripture to deliver God's people. The other was Jesus. From the womb. He's born and he's raised with a Nazarite vow, which is homeschooled. <laughs> You're like, this guy... And he's in the Hall of Faith in Hebrew. So like, I can't wait to see the first words out of his mouth. This guy is, you know, the angel announced him. Nazarite vow, homeschool. This guy's got promise. First words out of his mouth. That Philistine woman, I want her, go get her. You're like, what? I just, I, I want to marry a pagan woman. And not just a pagan woman, a woman of the enemy of our people. Yeah. 
And then he goes off to pay a, goes to pay off a gambling debt. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He's in the, the bed of a prostitute all night long, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. I can't teach this in Sunday school. <laughs> and he's in the hall of faith. And I'm like, what? And the Lord showed me Genesis 14, 4. What Samson's parents didn't realize as God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Samson, in all his immorality, was willing to do what God's people weren't. Push back evil. Wow. So, he said he'd do it. I gave him that option. I gave him that opportunity. I, I, I wasn't really a strong advocate for him. He kept all his promises. Funded traditionally black universities, lowest black unemployment, lowest Hispanic unemployment, lowest, you know, women. I mean, he went for it. it. You know, Jerusalem's the capital. He went after aggressively the unborn to protect them. I've never seen any president, the only president in the history of the United States who, who marched in the March for Life. The only one since 1973. And I'm like, that guy, I like him. But we didn't, Christians didn't show up because we didn't like the way he tweeted. <laughs> you know what that is? That's called moral pietism. I feel good about my apathy because he's just evil. And we justify not engaging in the public square. I gotta do this. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll do the here. I don't want to keep you forever, and I got a plane to catch, but this is a good one. And, and uh, I was telling the two fellas as we were driving in, and I, and I love this. It's one of my favorites. I've taken, I think, 13 trips to Israel. I've taken Senator Rand Paul and uh, Governor Rick Perry. I went with Huckabee. We took the, uh, DNC, or the RNC members, baptized a bunch of them in Jordan. And, and, I, and they asked me to go because I tie in American history with, with all the holy sites. Thanks for, thanks for the invite. I <laughs> I haven't been to Israel. Well, okay, we're going. You're, and Charlie Kirk, I'll be doing the teaching on that. You're going. All right. Done. You'll be my guest. I'll pay for it. You heard that. I'm paying for it. Is this taped? Is this recorded? <laughs> I'm a man of my word now. I'm Scottish and I may be a wee bit tight, but I'll still pay for it now. So, so... We're, we're up in the headwaters of the Jordan. It's one of the most beautiful places. It's lush. And, and every culture that's conquered that region has built up um, uh, a tribute to their god or goddess. So they got Bacchus and Aphrodite and, you know, Mars. All of them are up there. So Jesus, it's a long haul from, from Galilee up to the Caesarea Philippi. And he gets up to the headwaters with his disciples. Long haul. And he turns to his disciples and he says, who do men say that I am? Now, this is a cacophony of noise, Romans and, and Greeks, and they're all worshiping, and it's a cacophony of noise. And, and in the midst of it, he turns to him and he says, who do men say that I am? And they go, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Jeremiah. He goes, yeah, yeah. But who do you say that I am? And what? Peter goes, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock, I will build my church. No. Church didn't come until 400 years later. Jesus co-opted a secular term. He didn't use a religious term. He didn't say synagogue. He didn't say temple. 
He used a Greek term that had already been in use in the secular world for hundreds of years. It's called ecclesia or ecclesia. And you know what it means? We translated it as church. Tyndale got hung and then burned for translating it correctly from the Greek into the English for the very first time. It means public square, assembly. And on the door of every ecclesia in Greece were two words, isonomia and eleutheria, liberty and equality. They contended, and Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail. Nobody's going to enslave mankind and it's going to come from the public square and you will contend for the laws that will set men free by wise restraint. And he gave us moral law and from moral law comes civil law. And we threw that away 50 years ago and we just started doing this. God bless you, I see your hand. God bless you, I see your hand. Now don't forget to tithe. Make disciples and change the world one government at a time. God rules. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, let's give it up for Pastor Rob. Fantastic.